right. Well, welcome to day 332 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Daniel 3:13 through 4:18, Proverbs 29 verses 1 through 9 and 2 Peter chapter 2. All right. Let's get going with Daniel. Okay, so we are in the middle of the first story about the testing of the uh, Judean men in Babylon. Uh, as I noted a few days ago, the uh, this is going to be complemented with Daniel's own, own test, but this one is going to be of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, we saw yesterday that Nebuchadnezzar, despite um, hailing um, Daniel's God and his the wisdom that he had instilled on him and the, the understanding, being able to know his dream and then interpret it, despite all that, despite the high position to which Daniel and his companions have been elevated, uh, we now find these three in hot water with that very same king. And the king uh, has gone and set up um, a statue of some sort, possibly representing a god, possibly representing himself, uh, possibly uh, with, you know, he he did have a dream about a statue. And so whatever the exact significance of this thing was, he wanted everyone to bow down to it, especially his officials. And that would include these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego. Uh, but, of course, they refuse to do it, and uh, they are snitched on. And when he does hear of this, Nebuchadnezzar flies into what verse 13 calls a furious rage and has them brought before him. And um, throughout these th- this chapter, we're going to see, like, Nebuch- and next chapter, really, Nebuchadnezzar kind of, like, ping-ponging back and forth, um, uh, being very unstable in his emotions, being very firm in one direction one minute, and then completely stalwart in the other the next. And so here he is in a, a furious rage, and they are brought before him, and Nebuchadnezzar is like, I can't believe this. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Um, now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound, and here are all those instruments again, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, uh, I still have not looked up the pronunciation of that in English, uh, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good. But if you don't worship you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace, just like I have decreed will happen to anyone who does not do this. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, the answer we immediately want to shout out, well, the God whom you just confessed in chapter 2, verse 47, right? Where where he's he's the, 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 the God of all gods. He is the the, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, right? That's the God whom they worship. But this is a man used to getting what he wants. Uh, and one can imagine a couple different things maybe floating around in the back of his head. Um, I think like kind of the big picture in understanding a lot of what he says here uh, in today's reading is that in, in his worldview, um, worship of the God of Israel is completely compatible with polytheism, right? Uh, he's he's looking at this from the framework of the worship of many gods, 
And yes, this God of gr- is great, and he, I might even conv- confess him to be the God of gods. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't many lesser gods whom we also have to pay homage to and whom we also have to acknowledge and worship. And so, you know, what's the big deal? And throughout this, and again, through some other things that he's going to say today, um, he really discloses that uh, even in his best moments of confessing the Lord, he doesn't quite get it. He doesn't understand that there truly are no other gods, and this isn't a matter of just Yahweh being the strongest, but no, Yahweh is the only god that there is. He doesn't see that. Um, Also, you have to keep in mind from his perspective, and this is not to make an apology for him or anything here, but from his perspective, um, one's status in the world, one's greatness— reflects divine approval. And so if he's the king and he wants to do these things, then uh, then obviously God has put him in the position to do this. Obviously, this is what is good and right. And speaking of good and right, also, you need to remember that Nebuchadnezzar's knowledge of the God whom Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego worship is very, very limited. Now, we could speculate maybe Daniel had his ear and tried teaching him or something like that, but we know nothing of that. Uh, There certainly is no positive evidence for anything like that. All he knows is that this God is great, and even if he's acknowledging him to be God of gods, that doesn't mean that he knows anything about ethically about what God expects of him. I don't want to say that Babylonian religion was devoid of any and every morals, but you have to think that a, that a guy who thought that doing what he did was right, and you could think back through his whole history with the people of Judah, um, that's a guy whose moral system, moral compass, is not informed by anything even approximating biblical religion. He has no idea what God requires of him as king, as a human being. He probably knows very little, if anything, about the covenant that Israel has with her God. So, all those things have to be kept in mind here. So with that in mind, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego are uh, before him, and they answer him respectfully but firmly. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Notice the confidence that they have in this matter. Do they perhaps, although of course this is complete speculation, have in mind uh, the words of their ancient prophet Isaiah uh, 43 uh, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Um, is, Is that the confidence they have, or do they just simply have confidence that God will stand up for his righteous? Um, And so now, what they mean by deliverance here, do they mean that you're going to throw us in and we're not going to be burned? Do they mean that um, through some turn of events, God will make it so that we're not thrown in at all? Hard to know. But I think it's interesting what they say in verse um, verse 18, which is, should I think be our attitude to all forms of deliverance that we seek from God, from like uh, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether financial straits, whether... Um, whether physical pain and, and suffering and, and illness, right? When we, pay, it is good and right to pray to the Lord for healing, um, like James commands us to do in James chapter five. Um, but notice this: what he says, even if not, 
right? Even if for some reason God chooses not to do this, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is still good. We are still going to be faithful to him, um, right? And this is the this really is the attitude of the faithful, that we do what, what we think God will uh, reward. That I don't think it's unbiblical to think that God rewards the godly. Uh, we've certainly seen many scriptures that indicate that, and that he delivers the godly from peril. Uh, but we also know enough of God from Scripture to know that our our will and our desires and the way that we think things should go is not always the way that God wills them to go. And so in our position, right, we look to God. It is good and right to look to God for all forms of deliverance, but to say, and you know what? He might not choose, not our will, but his be done, right? Just like Jesus prayed in the garden. Um, and that, I think, is the proper attitude towards that. We look to God with confidence, but we also say God is not our genie. He doesn't just do everything that we want him to do, even if we have very good reasons for wanting him to do that, like not being burned in a furnace. Uh, This answer does not please Nebuchadnezzar, and it fills him with fury. These guys are just being, um, being obstinate, right? And there are a bunch of indicators in this paragraph in 19 through 23 that, uh, rage has taken over, okay? He's filled with fury. The expression of his face changes. He orders the furnace to be heated ridiculously high. It says seven times more than it was usually heated. This is probably not uh, not at, um, like literal. This is probably hyperbolic speech, such as we see in like Proverbs 24, 16, 26, 16, 26, 25. You know, so if the normal temperature of that furnace was say 2000 degrees, like what gold is melted at uh, like 1900 around there. Um, It's not saying I think that they heated it to 14,000 degrees or something like that. I think it's, I think it's just using seven the way the Bible often uses seven, but they get it as basically as hot as they possibly can. And uh, some of the mighty men, so he he gets real tough guys um, to bind them and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And um, they're bound with all their clothes on and uh, thrown in. And because the king's order was so urgent, remember, it's, this is the, the, the this is uh, an angry and hasty response. Um, but they're, they're in such a hurry, and you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, do it now, do it now, and the furnace is overheated. The, the flame is so hot that even coming near killed those guys. And, uh, and so they go into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego. And, uh, and then the perspective switches to that of King Nebuchadnezzar, who is <clears throat> now astonished. So he's changed from fury to astonishment and rises up once again in haste. Everyone's heart is pumping here. And he, and he tells those, his attendants, his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Because remember yesterday I described it as kind of like a milk bottle, like a vase with a little door on the bottom where you feed stuff in through. And you, they probably are put in the top. And then, you know, you can see through the opening what's going on inside there. And he's looking. And through the flames, he says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. So, of course, incredible. They... Uh, God is protecting his servants from the flames. But then notice, too, he's thrown three in. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four. 
and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, this, of course, is very tantalizing, <laughs> and especially to us as Christians, right? Um, in fact, you have this <clears throat> reflected in some translations, like the King, J- King James Version will say, like the Son of God, which I think it's safe to say is, is suggestive that this individual who is with them is some kind of pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, However, the linguistic connection is not that tight, and of course, like, Son of God is, as we've seen, like a royal title. It could be a, a, a divine being, uh, which I, the latter of which I think is closer here, um, particularly because it is, it is plural in the Aramaic. Uh, in Aramaic, it is Elohim, so it's the Son of Gods, in being the, the, the plural ending. And note that in verse 28, when Nebuchadnezzar is commenting on this, he says that that God had sent his angel and delivered his servant. So he sees this as a as a divine being, a messenger. Now, one of, might of course be might be skeptical about Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual insight, and so you know you might respond in a way characteristic of the Big Lebowski and say, "Yeah, well, like that's just your opinion, man." <laughs> but uh, note that in uh, Daniel six twenty two, when Daniel's in the lion's den and he is delivered, he attributes that to God sending his angel to shut the lion's mouth. And at any rate, we are interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's words in the first place, right? He's the one who says the fourth is like a son of the gods. So the question is ultimately, well, what does he mean by this? Now, of course, if one is committed to the idea that when we do see the angel of Yahweh, if this is the same angel of Yahweh that we're dealing with elsewhere in Scripture, there are other angels in the book of Daniel— in fact, you know, part of the the peek into the spiritual realm that Daniel gives us is that angels are active in this world. But if one is committed to the idea, let's say, that this is like the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, and that the angel of Yahweh should be interpreted as a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son, then sure. But I remain unconvinced of of the Jesus interpretation of this passage, simply because I think it's going beyond what we can know. Like you have to make several assumptions in order to to get that to walk on all fours. Um, it's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Nevertheless, it shouldn't take away from our amazement of how God spared the lives of these three men, of his servants, um, or that God does not make them go through this alone. I think I think those theological insights um, are entirely valid, and I think it's valid to even say things like, well, Jesus is the one who stands in the fire with me when I'm going through this stuff, because after all, haven't you read Hebrews, right? If if God is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego um, through the presence of an intermediary angel, well, who's the one who is with us till the end of the age? Who is the one who's, who's, whose title is God with us? So, you know, I think even that kind of talk is not like a misuse of this text or anything. I think it's, it's, a, it's a creative, uh, legitimate way uh, to apply the message of this, this text. Well, anyway, um, in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar makes a, an about face, and he has the, them brought out of the furnace and, and, and declares to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego, servants of the Most High God. Once again, he's, he's acknowledging 
this God whom he whom he whom he acknowledged back in chapter two. And um, and this is a fitting way for again a polytheistic man to refer to God, right? He is the most high God. Uh, come out and come here. And they come out of the fire. Um, and all of those who are around him, uh, many of those who uh, no doubt had worshipped this statue, the satraps, prefects, governors, kings, counselors, they all got, gathered together and they're inspecting him. And they saw, they saw that the firehead did not have any power over the bodies of those men. Um, think about what this is doing to the morale of God's people, right? As as they are going to go through trials and they are going to go through fires. Like this is part of what Daniel is getting God its audience ready for. Um, the hair of their heads are not singed. Their cloaks, the, the right, they were bound with all their their clothes on, and you can't even smell the fire. Okay, um, I'm guessing that's kind of like when you're, you know. Whenever we're making s'mores in the backyard, I, I probably need to shower afterwards and uh, change my clothes because I'll smell smoky, right? That smell's not even on them. And Nebuchadnezzar then blesses God. Um, who, and thus far, the only one in the book of Daniel who's done this is Daniel in 2, 19 and 20. Um, and uh, this is what the servants of God do, right? Think about how close this man's heart is being brought right now. Uh, remember what we read the other day in Psalm 134.1 and then in 135.19-20, right? The house of Aaron, the house of Levi, bless Yahweh, bless Yahweh. And now here is Nebuchadnezzar blessing the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And almost like a psalmist is saying he's, he's delivered his servants who trusted in him, set aside the king's command, they're talking about himself in the third person, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Again, the post-exilic audience and beyond the post-exile, I mean, I guess it's all post-exile, right? But, you know, as as they're going to have to go through some of the wars that they're going to go through, um, and their call to faithfulness, like in the time of the Maccabees and everything, like this, this is... Um, you know, a, a very, very encouraging story um, for those who will, many of whom will have to die for their faith. Um, therefore, I make a decree. So now here is the new decree, right? The last one was you had to worship this, the, this, this thing that I've made. But now here, um, I make a decree that anyone, and notice it goes out to the same people of any people, nation, or language. We saw that language back in 3, 4, and 7 who speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be, and here you have the same uh, the, the same punishment for anyone who didn't bow down to the statue, torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God, not just no other God though, right? So he's still not monotheistic, who is able to rescue in this way. And so now these guys, like uh, Daniel did after he interpreted the dream, and like they, they had been promoted too, but they are promoted once again in the province of Babylon. All right, then you get to chapter four, and chapter four is a little bit weird because chapter four is basically like all the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a little, it's, it is like, like, is this supposed to be like a written decree? We don't know. It's just, it sits in here in a little bit odd. At least it seems a little bit odd to me that, that he just, he, you could see the whole story being told from the third person, like the, like the, the story we read yesterday about the dream and everything. Well, and the day before, um, 
But uh, this is all put in the first person, which I, I find fascinating. And I'm not sure I know the exact reason why that is. Um, but And here again, we see Nebuchadnezzar um, coming to understanding and yet still falling short of like a fully robust biblical faith. So to all the people's nations and languages, here we have the term again, who dwell in the earth, uh, peace be multiplied to you. Uh, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So now he's going to proclaim uh, this This is, um, you know, on the heels, uh, at least as it's presented in the text, of what has just happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although it is interesting that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mention that in the letter. So, you know, perhaps he wrote this simply after Daniel interpreted his dream. But he says, "...how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom." and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And that, of course, is going to be like a major part of the message of the book of Daniel. We've already seen that, right? Remember what happened in 244 with that stone not cut from any human hand. Gee, I wonder whose hand did cut it, right? And it comes and it smashes the kingdoms that came before it, and they all crumble, and uh, and then and then it grows into a mountain that is... Uh, going to be eternal and will never pass away. And so here now we get a story of another dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Um, and uh, as I lay in bed, and this is interesting, the fancies and the vision of my head alarmed me. Fancies there, you could also translate that fantasies, fantastic things. Um so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So notice that his standard here is lower than it was in chapter 2, where he wanted to know what the dream it was. And they all came in, but they could not make known its interpretation. And so, you know, he presents all these others coming up. Hey, anybody want to interpret this one? And these guys, probably humbled from what had happened last time, don't have anything to say to the king. And then Daniel comes in, and this is still Nebuchadnezzar telling of this, who was named Baal Tetshatsar, um, after the name of my god. Okay, so I named him after my god, uh, but here he is actually a servant of the Most High God. But notice that he also says, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Again, there we have the plural, right? Nebuchadnezzar still you know, has not learned the lesson of monotheism. Um, and I told him the dream, right? Because Daniel's got his trust now, so he's not yet, He's this isn't so much of a test as it is, you know, I know that, the, that, that God grants you, that your God grants you interpretation, so just tell me what it is. And then he says, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation, which does kind of sound like, uh, you know, some some people have gotten kind of tripped up on this because there it sounds like he's asking for the content of the dream again, but he it, that it, the story does not unfold like that. And um, so I think it's just like, tell me the, the, the significance of the visions uh, that I saw and their interpretation. So visions interpretation would be like kind of rough synonyms in this sentence. Uh, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. And what does he see? Well, he sees a great tree in the midst of the earth. And here we see like this imagery of a great tree that represents a uh, a great kingdom. And we've certainly seen this imagery before. You've It's, of course, very high. Its top is reaching into heaven. It's visible from the whole earth, just like 
you know, Nebuchadnezzar is, spoiler alert. And uh, it's got beautiful leaves, abundant fruit. And uh, here, oh, here we have it. The beasts of the field found their shade under it, and the birds in the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Uh, so remember, this is, this is, I mean, most recently we've seen these, this is like the characteristics of the trees fed by the river in Ezekiel's vision, uh, again, symbolizing a kingdom. Uh, we also saw it in, applied to a pagan kingdom in Ezekiel 31, where um, Egypt is being rebuked, and it's, remember, he's saying, this was Assyria, Assyria was this great tree. And um, and so he sees that, and then he says, I saw in my visions, the visions of my head as I lay in head, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now, there's definitely been a lot of speculation around this term, watcher. So number one, it's it's a little ambiguous, actually, what the word means. Uh, in in Aramaic, it is uh, it is ear, and uh, it's actually spelled the same way that the Hebrew word for city is. But there's there, that's no uh, that's I think just a coincidence. Um, so uh, some have suggested something like an envoy or protector. But I th- um, the, the, oh by the way, the Septuagint, the Greek version, simply translates it angel angelos, uh, which I think is probably roughly correct. By the way. Um, but the, the term ear probably comes from the verb ur, which means to awaken or wake or to wake up. And that's actually a Hebrew verb. And if it is, we might speculate that it means someone like someone whose eyes are open, right? Someone who's alert. I should also probably note that there are a lot of, um, mentions of watchers in, um, uh, non-scriptural Jewish writings, um, in the following centuries the centuries following Daniel, some right up upon when Daniel was probably composed. But like First Enoch, for example, um, definitely has a lot of watchers in it. Um, it can be like a fallen angel, but there's also plenty of times, even in the book of Enoch itself, like in 226, 123, 1, where they're clearly, you know, positive, good spiritual beings as well. This is also how it's used in uh, the book of Jubilees in um, 415, where they're definitely the angels of the Lord there. Um, and I think the Gen- Genesis Apocryphon uh, found in uh, the dead, the dead sea, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, also they're positive there. So it seems to just be another term for like some sort of an angelic messenger who truly sees, we might say, right? His eyes are open, he is awake. So he shows up and he announces that this tree is to be cut down, its branches lopped off, all of its fruit scattered, its leaves scattered, the beasts uh, who are under it flee, um, and uh, and and basically it's left a stump of it. The stump with its roots are left in the earth, bound with a band of iron, okay, and uh, and bronze. Uh, amid the tender grass of the field. So we already see a little bit similarity of the first between the first dream uh, with the first dream. Uh, Cause remember you have this like very grand head of this colossal statue. And then you've got other, other metals that follow it um, and iron and bronze are among them. Although admittedly there's no silver here. And technically the silver in the statue is what uh, brings down Babylon. Um, and then it kind of like morphs into a, not a what, a tree, but a he. 
Um, so let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. So basically leave him out in the open, leave it out exposed. Um, let his mind be changed from a man's. All right, now it's fully representing a man, which may have been one of the reasons why Nebuchadnezzar is confused. Uh, let a beast's mind be given to him, uh, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Uh, that is uh, an, an ambiguous um, statement there, how long this is supposed to last. Uh, periods of time is a very good translation of the Aramaic idanin. Um, most interpreters take this as seven years. Um, uh, but it, it does just mean periods of time. Um, the sentences by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Again, a major theme in the book of Daniel. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O, o Belteshazzar, Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known the, these things to me, but for, as for you, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then uh, we have a cliffhanger now uh, for tomorrow, so we'll see what happens with that tomorrow. But now let's go over to Proverbs chapter 29. So it begins, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. So a stiff neck, of course, is um, often a way in the Bible of describing spiritual stubbornness, not willing to yield uh, to the Word of God, here probably to wisdom. And the idea, I think, is that a thing that is stiff is easily broken. I'm from Jersey, so let's think of pasta. Okay, Before you cook it, you're able to break that spaghetti, no problem. Um, but uh, but when, it's, when it's cooked, right, when, if it's... Uh, if it's stiff, it's easily broken, right? When when it's cooked, you're not going to be able to bend it and break it. Of course, you could just say, oh, it's pasta. I'll just tear it apart. All right, the metaphor is broken down, but you get the drift, right? Okay, next one. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And this actually is um, a rephrasing of a concept now uh, for the fourth time we've seen in Proverbs, 11.10, 28.12, and 28.28, the idea that um, people are are blessed and things prosper and they are happy when uh, when the righteous prosper in the land and increase in the land, but ruling but people but but when the wicked are exalted, then it's miserable for everyone. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Right, a companion of prostitutes, one who has no morals and is willing to spend what he what he has um, for momentary pleasure. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. There is, uh, here we have, um, very similar to the idea in chapter 2, right? That the that when the righteous increase, people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people groan. Here, it's a, it's, the king is establishing the land through justice, and the land is built up, but um, a key mark of of injustice, of course, is exploitation, forcing those who are under you to give you gifts. Uh, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Okay, so flattery might be a really easy way to talk to someone because you're not going to have any conflict. People like me, who tend to like to avoid conflict, are more tempted to flatter than we are to be truthful. 
But in doing that, you can end up in a lot of trouble because you are not, um, you're going to end up with people who do not receive wisdom from you uh, being all around you. Instead, all their they, they think they're doing great. They think that they're doing fine. There's always the temptation to not bring up hard things with people, but you got to think of what that kind of thing is making them into. Um, an evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. So here is the end of those deeds. The end of evil is to be ensnared in your own transgression. The end of being righteous is joy. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor, Okay, here is that that noun we saw the other day in Psalm 140, verse 13. Yahweh will maintain the cause of the afflicted. Remember that? And, and you can insert that idea here, right? A, a righteous man knows the cause of the poor. So uh, whether it's a matter of like human rights, like the ESV's translation kind of um, sounds a lot like, or just simply like, you you understand the plight of people and you're occupied with that and you're concerned with helping people's lives become better. Um, but a wicked man does not understand such things, right? He looks at that and he says, I don't get it. Why do you care so much about that? Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Okay, you, so you got a lot of people who like to talk trash, who um, uh, they are going to reap a lot of destruction but the way to, but but when you're wise, not only do you avoid that, but you actually uh, turn away wrath. You turn away what is um, uh, bad things that are going to happen. Uh, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. So this is a proverb, I think, against arguing uh, with a fool. Um, you're oh, kind of like you're wasting your time here because he's just going to keep uh, he, you might be really serious and think it's time to really get down to brass tacks, but he's just not going to take it seriously. So this is almost like a, an extended way of saying, don't waste your breath. Be concerned not only with speaking wise things, but by, but with speaking them to people who are actually going to hear them. All right, let's go now to second Peter chapter two. All right. You remember how yesterday, um, when he talked about the, the his experience uh, of Jesus's transfiguration, right? And then he said, but we have we have the prophetic word even more sure in the scriptures, right? And he talked about legitimate prophecy and like no true prophet um, was, no prof, true prophecy was ever produced by one's own interpretation, or I suggested we understand that as like the, uh, the prophets simply speaking out of their own imagination, their own mind, but rather they're moved by the Holy Spirit, right? And they, so they speak the words of God. And yet, we also see in the Old Testament plenty of false prophets who rose among the people. And now he's going to make this very contemporary, and he's actually going to turn this into a rebuke of false teachers and those who follow him. And this is an interesting passage. Um, I think that Second Peter actually has very good an anatomy of like very helpful like anatomy of what it means to live a righteous life and what it means to live a wicked life. Like if you want to understand, like one of the best ways to, to beat an enemy, right, is to really understand your enemy. And so one of the ways to really beat your sin is to understand your sin and to be, and to be introspective about it. And, you know, in that sense, you want to be an expert on your own sin. I know the things that tempt me. I know 
you know, what it's really doing to me. And so again, just like the intro, right? Remember it listed those virtues that we should pursue here. It's going to list, it's going to tell us like what, uh, the, the inner workings of a person, um, straying after falsehood, um, look like. And here we see that kind of lifestyle fueled by false teachers, okay? Uh, so false prophets bringing in secretly destructive heresies, okay? So notice the secret, right? They're, they're, they're not open about it. They don't want to receive opposition. And so, you know, don't, don't tell the pastor or the elders about this, but I'm just going to tell you what I think, okay? That kind of thing. Uh, it's teaching that is not in the light and open to scrutiny is teaching that is automatically suspicious. If you're teaching things in secret, uh, not wanting other people to know what you're saying, then um, that is a big red flag. Um, and these guys are denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, in case you didn't catch it, that phrase there. Um, is definitely employed in the conversations sometimes about whether or not like true Christians can lose their salvation, right? Because I think it's safe to say that Peter does not think that these people whom he's talking about right here are, you know, true Christians or truly saved, we might say, right? And yet he says that this master bought them. And so on the one hand, in the past, they were bought by presumably Christ's blood, and, uh, and yet here they are doing these things and proving they don't belong to him. So here you have people who are legitimately bought by Christ um, and, and, yet do, and yet do all this stuff. So doesn't this show, don't you know, that um, salvation is not permanent, it can be lost? And I've gone into that before, you know, and I, I don't think it's as simple as simply going, once saved, always saved, I don't have... You know, as long as I made a decision to follow Jesus back in 1986, I don't have to worry about anything. No, it is like we've seen plenty against that, plenty to show that true faith is faith that, well, produces the virtues that Peter talked about in chapter one, right? And produces the fruit of the Spirit, and therefore produces righteousness, and therefore produces good works. The Spirit is indwelling us, right? Like, so we're, we're far from that kind of easy believism here, hopefully. But, um, uh, but yeah, what do we make of this, this phrase here? Um, well, I think we need to observe that this is kind of a little bit of a passing comment, right? Like, this is just a descriptor. It's not like Peter's like, you know what, let me tell you something about security, eternal security, or lack thereof, right? Like, this is not what this passage is about. Um, so that's a red flag towards that interpretation. Um, I think that it's it's perfectly reasonable to see this as you know they think that this that they've been purchased by the blood of Christ but in fact the way they are living shows that they have not i think that that's a fine way to interpret this um i don't see any problem with that at all so that's how i understand that uh, i don't see that as a true challenge to the notion of um you know uh, that that salvation true salvation cannot be lost um so then it turns in verse 2 to those who follow them, and it will basically stay on that now for the rest of, 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 of the reading today. So many will follow their sensuality. It, it is possible, I guess, to see this as now a totally se separate group, right? So like they will follow their own sensuality, 
but I, I think that is doubtful. It, it it doesn't make that explicit. I think they're, you know, they're they're following the sensual ways that these guys are teaching in their destructive heresies. Uh, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Um, you kind of think, see a little bit of a connection here with some of what Peter was thinking in First Peter, right, where uh, people, uh, if they see you doing evil and speak evil of the name, like, that's a terrible thing. Uh, but who is there to harm you for, for doing good, right? And, and you should, by your behavior, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Okay, so uh, so here here are people who claim to be Christians, yet because of their conduct, the way of truth is blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Um, and again, here, notice the the they here is still seems to be these false teachers, just like in verse two, their sensuality. Uh, the the ones who are speaking false words are the teachers. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep, uh, a very colorful way of putting that. And then he cites um, a bunch of examples here, and these are examples of God's judgment. And Now, the first one seems to just be an example of judgment. So this is, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment— um, that's the first one, right? And there, again, it just seems like judgment. But then he starts talking about Noah, and then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And so it seems like what he's talking about are like instances, at least in the second, uh, the sec, the the second and third example here, examples of when judgment came, uh, but godly are preserved. And in fact, that is where he's going with this. He'll say that explicitly, um, but. Uh, want to say real quick for in, in verse four, this idea of angels who were not spared when they sinned, but were cast into, uh, and here the, the Greek actually for cast into hell, that's like, it's like a single verb that kind of means that it's actually tartarao, which is to hold captive in Tartarus. And you might be like, well, what is Tartarus? Well, let me tell you. So the vast majority of times, uh, when you read, and again, I'm, I base off basing my talks off of the English Standard Version, but when you come across in the English Standard Version uh, the word hell, that is almost always translating um, the, the the Greek word um, geenon, which is the gehenna, right? The, the heaping, burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, um, used as a metaphor for the final judgment the, the, of the wicked. Um, there's one place, and this is in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of, and there it is, Hades. The English Standard Version gives hell, and one might argue there that, like, you know, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Does he mean there the gates of the final judgment of the wicked, or does he mean simply like death and the grave, um, and, and all that it represents, perhaps? Um, but then here, and here alone, uh, you actually have the concept of Tartarus. And as I said, it's it's done with a verb, which just means cast into Tartarus. And Tartarus is a concept that, like Hades, we get from the, uh, from, from the Greek world. And there it is conceived as like a, something lower than even Hades, and so lower and worse. Um, 
and it is, and I, I think the way to think of it is, you know, we we call the final judgment of the witness of the wicked hell, but the Bible calls it by a lot of names: uh, outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, or even the lake of fire. You know, there's a bunch of different ways in which that is described, and here it's just employing that term to describe this concept. And I, I think that's that's important, right? That when we're we're trying to understand concepts, we can't just restrict ourselves to certain words. Um, but there's there's the there it's said that they're kept in chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And there that that indicates that like here he doesn't actually have in mind the final judgment of the wicked, right? Because they're they're awaiting final judgment. So this is like a Hades that's worse than Hades is the idea. Many have seen in this Peter actually employing um, a concept that we know of from the book of First Enoch. I know it, this is the second time I've, we, we talked about watchers earlier on today. Um, and, uh, you know, so is, is Peter, like, endorsing this, this teaching from this book? Now, I think that issue is more pronounced in uh, the book of Jude. Here, however, and I am not alone in thinking this, uh, the, the, the reference to kind of the speculation of what happened to those sons of God and daughters of men who are there understood as angels. Here, the the reference to that, the explanation that the book of Enoch gives for that um, is not as clear. It, I don't think, this doesn't seem to me to be a very clear reference to that idea. Um, and I, I mean, it's possible if so, then I should probably revise my my thinking of of Genesis chapter six, um, but um, I don't see this as a clear example of a place where the New Testament is is employing a, a concept from the book of Enoch at least consciously. Um, I think I, I just don't think the evidence is clear enough to get you there. It is it is not that esoteric and strange of a belief to think that uh, of fallen angels, which we get elsewhere in Scripture. Um, being uh, awaiting God's judgment, okay, and that that I think that's as far as we could go here. Okay, as I said, the second example is the ancient world in the time of uh, of Noah, who is here described as a herald of righteousness, along with seven others. Again, the uh, the godly preserved from the judgment of the ungodly, and then you have Sodom and Gomorrah, and. Here, a very generous reading of the character of Lot. Remember, I, I said this with respect to like Samson in the Hall of Faith in um, Hebrews chapter 11, but he says that, that God rescued unrighteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, which I think is a fair description of, of Lot's attitude, right? He's not happy about the way that his neighbors are asked, acting. And then we get something that, you know, is is surprising, but again, we're not really, we're not told anything in Genesis that contradicts this, um, that as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And one, one might even wonder if the reason why he's calling him righteous here is a reading of, um, is a result of his understanding, Peter's understanding of Abraham's conversation with God in Genesis 18, right? Remember, if, if only so many righteous are found there, then what will happen? Will you spare the city? And it can be implied that Lot is still considered righteous, although he definitely stinks as a host, but 
and and he does bad stuff, right? Like he offers his daughters to these men. Like that's not a righteous thing to do. That's terrible. But you know, in the lead up up to this, it's totally plausible to think that Lot is quite disturbed, but nevertheless um, chooses to live among them. Um, so if if these things are all true, your point you get to the point in verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous uh, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So there are the two points from those illustrations, right? Uh, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling pass- passion and despise authority. And then he gets back into the description of the wicked, bold and willful. Okay, so there's a purposefulness to this, and here is where we get into that anatomy of the sinful heart. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, okay, making making fun of, of that which they shouldn't. Whereas even angels who are greater in might and power, they don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them. So I think the idea here is the glorious ones being the angels, and the angels aren't trying to go tit for tat or say, oh, well, you called me a name, I'm going to call you a name. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying here right? That the angels know how to restrain their tongues. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, again, you're following your instincts, not, not God's word, born to be caught and destroyed, that, that animal imagery coming through there, uh, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Um, you get uh, definitely an idea here of the things that we saw in Romans 1, right? Where giving over to sin, God giving them over to their own sin is itself a punishment. Um, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. So that's how shameless they are, right? Like typically the night is for doing shady stuff, but they're just doing it out in the open. They're blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you, Um so they, they try to be among you. They try to be part of you. Um, that Yet they have eyes full of adultery. And, you know, certainly anyone who's been in a church long enough knows that you get people who creep in who are like this, uh, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. So here they drag others down as well. And um, they, they, they he's going to talk about this in verse 18 again in just a minute. Um, they've they have hearts trained in greed, right? They've, they're making conscious effort to this, to do this stuff. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, right, who does not end up very favorably. And here he references the event that happens in Numbers 22. So he loved gain from wrongdoing, okay? Probably there, you know, he's pretty reluctant initially, Balaam is, um, uh, to take money to curse Israel, but then certainly afterwards, when they get to Moab, uh, the Israelites get to Moab, he's got no problem leading them in idolatry, and I think that's what he's referring to there. But in Numbers 22, he's rebuked by a donkey who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs. What a disappointment, right? You, you, you come to them, you expect fruit, you expect water, and yet they're dry. There are mists driven by the storm, remember, driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as Paul might say. For them, the, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So notice how, like, unsteady they are, right? That, that they're not firm in their faith. It doesn't take much to blow them off course. Um, 
for and there and there by the way we have another um uh, conceptual idea of the final judgment of the wicked the gloom of utter darkness uh for speaking loud boasts of folly they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are already barely escaping from those who live in error and again this is why church discipline is an important thing because um People who are not as firm in their faith can easily be led astray by some who have low standards that are too low for the kingdom of God. Um, they promise freedom, but by themselves are slaves of corruption. And I love how it puts this, and this, is, this has helped me in my struggle with a lot of things. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Okay, uh, that uh, So... And doesn't sin often look like freedom? Don't you want to be free? Why do you want to be bossed around by some god in the sky, right? No, that's not freedom. That is enslavement, because you are mastered by something outside of yourself, and you're mastered by something unworthy of the title master, because there's only one. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ— and here it's sounding very Hebrews 6-ish, right? These people are very close. They've made some progress, initial progress in their faith, yet they again become entangled in them. Their, their last state has become worse than the first. So, okay, so very similar to Hebrews 6, right? People who are close and yet turn away from Christ, and Hebrews goes so far as to say that it's impossible to restore such people to repentance, for it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered them. And there is this idea that that knowledge raises our level of guilt, I think. And then he finishes with, by, by quoting what he calls the true proverb, Proverbs 26, 11. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. All right, now on that positive note, I'd like to bid you farewell for the day, and I'm looking forward to being with you again tomorrow. Again, sorry for a little bit of a longer episode. We had some doozies today to uh, explain. So um, at any rate, I very much look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading Scripture. Take care, and bye-bye.